the field I do research in is called behavioral genetics, which means the genetics of behavior, just like medical genetics means the genetics of medicine. And I'm a behavioral scientist, so that's why I study it. But it, it's also, it has some interesting uh, implications from a larger science point of view. It's, uh, we study things like reading disability and schizophrenia. These are among the most complex traits that uh, can be studied, but they're also very important. You don't have to explain to someone why you're trying to understand the origins of reading disability, um, schizophrenia, any of these things we study. And so it's not as arcane as some fields. People understand heredity, and we're talking about heredity just in the sense that everyone knows it at one level, like eye color and hair color. We're talking about heredity, and eye color, hair color, height, um, there, those differences among us are caused by DNA differences that we inherit at the moment of conception. And um, behavioral genetics uses genetics to understand behavior. And that's very different from what a biologist would do or a geneticist, really. In what I'm really excited about now is the impact of the DNA revolution on the behavioral sciences and on society. I think we're really at a turning point. It's sort of an end game for me in terms of 40 years of my research looking at genetic uh, influences in the behavioral sciences. And uh, I think it's good to look at this in the perspective of 40 years and it's personal to me because I've, it's been my journey as well. And I remember 40 years ago, it might be hard for people to believe this, but 40 years ago it was sort of dangerous to talk about genetic influence in psychology. My, as a, a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin, my first meeting was the Eastern Psychological Association meeting in Boston. And so here I am, a naive graduate student, going to this meeting, and I was presenting some work on behavioral genetics, which is, at that time, it was a twin study of personality development in children. And so I go to this meeting, it was a plenary session, 3,000 psychologists there, and Leon Kamen was president at that time, and he was giving his presidential address. And he was thundering on about these wicked people daring to study genetics in psychology, when we know genetics doesn't have anything to do with it, it's all environmental. And so that was a real shocker for me, because it was a rabble-rousing sort of meeting, and the rabble was getting roused, you know, and here I am, the only behavioral geneticist in the audience, so that was my introduction to how, maybe I was too naive, but how uh, political some of this was at the time, and how much antipathy there was to genetics. And I think over the 40 years, things have changed quite a bit, but for, uh, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, the task was really just to get people to consider the possibility that genetics might be important. Uh, schizophrenia, for example, it was mother-blaming. Schizophrenia was caused by what your mother did to you in the first few years of life. Um, and it has changed gradually. It's been a slow process. But 20 years ago, I decided we didn't really need much more research demonstrating genetic influence. Twin studies, adoption studies, made for me a very solid case that just about everything showed genetic influence. And we're talking about individual differences in behavior and the extent to which genetic differences make people different, or environmental differences. And genetic influences weren't just significant, they were substantial. And so at that time, 20 years ago, I began to feel 
the people, some people would never believe this, and they would, uh, but DNA, I think, is a game changer. It's a lot harder to argue with DNA than it is with a twin study or an adoption study. So I decided the thing that would advance the field most would be to find some of the genes responsible for this ubiquitous heritability in the behavioral sciences. But the problem there was it was sort of ahead of the technology at that time. So we could get DNA from, um, in our case, uh, cheek swabs. We now just get it from saliva. But you could get DNA, and at great expense, you could genotype a few genes called candidate gene approaches. And, you know, you'd think dopamine genes, serotonin genes, they're so important in, as neurotransmitter systems. You'd think DNA variation in those genes might make a difference. Well, that didn't pan out. There have been probably thousands of studies with these few handful of candidate genes. And people started realizing 10 years ago that what we needed to do was to take a systematic approach across the 3 billion base pairs of DNA, an atheoretical approach. So rather than just assuming that these couple of genes um, are important, to really look at it systematically across the genome. But, you know, how could you do that? And it, it, this is where it really became technology-led. About 10 years ago, there were two advances that really made all the difference. Um, one of the uh, biggest advances uh, involved what we call chips. They're DNA arrays, a, a little plate the size of a postage stamp that can now genotype hundreds of thousands of DNA variants, we call it. And these are, can be spread out evenly across the genome so that with this one chip, which then costs several thousand dollars, now costs less than a hundred dollars, you can genotype uh, a systematic um, array of DNA variants across the whole genome, hundreds of thousands of them. So this made it possible to do systematic genome-wide association studies. Um, and um, this has really taken over the life sciences now. People don't do these little candidate gene studies. Um, and um, uh, it's been a revolution in the last few years that uh, hundreds of these um, genome-wide associations have been done throughout medicine and biology and the behavioral sciences, and they're beginning to pay off. Um, in the uh, most of the successes are in the biological sciences, medical sciences, where there's a lot more money to do big-time research. But in the behavioral sciences, in 2013, there was an influential paper published in Science that was a genome-wide association study on what might seem like a dumb variable. It was years of education. And the reason for that is every genome-wide association study includes that as a demographic measure. You know, you just describe your sample that way. So it's a lousy variable in some ways, but it's kind of a socially real variable. And the point is you can get very large samples. And the reason you need to do that is what we learned very early on is that there are no genes of major effects. So everything's heritable, but there's nothing, no traits in the behavioral sciences where there's just one or two genes involved. There are thousands of single gene traits like phenylketonuria, for example, which is a single gene recessive disorder that causes severe retardation if untreated. But that's very rare, like one in, uh, say, 20,000 people in the world. That doesn't enter into the heritability, say, of cognitive abilities and learning abilities, because there's so few people with that. 
say, uh, learning abilities, cognitive abilities are substantially heritable, but in the early genome-wide association studies, which were powered to detect genes that accounted for, say, 3-4% of the variants, including mine, came up empty-handed consistently. So it began to dawn on people that we were looking at many, many genes of very small effect size. And what that means is you're going to need very large samples to detect them. So this science paper in 2013, it um, was a genome-wide association study of years of education. And they came up with just three hits, that is, three DNA variants um, in different bits of the genome uh, that were genome-wide significant. When you have hundreds of thousands of DNA variants, you have to correct for multiple testing massively. So this isn't a probability value of 0.05, it's 0.00005. I mean, you have to have a, a big sample to detect these effects as significant. And these were genome-wide significance. They replicated in independent samples. But the largest effect of those three hits in this science paper was 0.02% of the variance. So that's 0.0002, an incredibly tiny effect. If you put those SNPs together, you explain about almost 2% of the variance of years of education. So years of education is probably 50% heritable, meaning of the differences among people in their years of schooling, uh, about half of those differences can be explained with genetics. But here, with the genome-wide association study, with 120,000 people, we were detecting effects that accounted for 2% of the variance, reliably, in independent samples. But that's 2%, whereas the heritability is 50%. So there's a big gap there. But nonetheless, it was a start, explaining 2% of the variance. And those those results were used in over a hundred studies to begin to create a score, a genetic score, that could predict years of education. And then it turns out it explains more variance in cognitive ability than it does in years of education. So it explains about 3% of the variance in general cognitive ability, otherwise known as intelligence. So it's a start, and it's, it was exciting because um, this is the first time we ever found genes that accounted for variants in the population in the behavioral sciences. But we're now at a turning point because that was 2013. In May of 2016, a, a follow-up to that paper came out in, in Nature that didn't have 120,000 subjects, it had 250,000, and it found not three, but 74 genome-wide significant hits. And together, it explains not 2%, but 5% of the variance of years of education. So that is going to be a turning point. You might say, well, it's only 5%. But 5% begins to give you predictability uh, in the real world. And, and here's the neat thing is we've taken that, we call it polygenic score, where you take all of those top associations between DNA variants and years of education, and you ask, okay, that's years of education. That's a pretty rough variable. What about actual test of school performance? And so we're using this right now, and what we, we have a paper 
coming out that shows that it explains almost 10% of the variance in um, years of it, in, in tests of school performance here in the UK. Um, these are called GCSE scores. They're national tests that are administered at the end of compulsory schooling at age 16. So this polygenic score from this 2016 paper explains almost 10% of the variance in GCSE scores. Those scores are about 60% heritable, we know from our twin studies. So there's still this gap, but explaining 10% of the variance in the social sciences, social and behavioral sciences, is pretty good going. And it's why I say we're at this turning point now where people are going to begin to realize that if you don't believe in genetics, you're going to have to argue with DNA. It's not just saying, oh, the twin study's no good or the adoption study's no good. DNA is real. And what's more is that for the first time, it allows us to make genetic predictions for an individual. So in the past, the best you could do, say with schizophrenia or alcoholism, is make a prediction based on family risk. So everybody in the family, all the siblings, for example, have the same risk. It's a family risk. Here, you can make predictions for an individual. So when we take this polygenic score and look at it within families, siblings correlate 50%. They're 50% similar. So half of the time, they'll have the same DNA variant, but half of the time they won't. So if you look at this polygenic score, some, twins will, some siblings will be similar, some will be different for this polygenic score. And that difference in the polygenic score translates into a difference in the siblings within a family in terms of their GCSE scores. And we're talking about a pretty big difference here, even though it's only 10% of the variance. If you, these polygenic scores are perfectly normally distributed, you know, as a bell-shaped curve. If you take the, the people at the top of that genetic distribution, say the top seventh septile, and the bottom septile, the difference between them and their GCSE scores is one whole grade. So it's the difference between getting into university or not. So it's a, you know, even though we're only explaining about 10% of the variance, it still is enough to make a difference. And when people begin to realize this, I think it's going to be seen as a real turning point in terms of genetics and the behavioral sciences. And what I'm interested in doing now is to thinking, thinking about how we play this endgame, how we look at the impact in, on science, which I'm pretty clear about where to go, but much less clear about where we go in terms of society. So you, it's only 10% of the variance, but now might be a good time to get a, a real discussion going about what do we do with this? How do we use it? How do we avoid potential abuses of this data, because I'm totally convinced with all the DNA companies out there, this is going to happen whether we like it or not. So it's, it's better for us to get ahead of the curve on it and begin to anticipate um, the potential as well as the problems. And I'm more of a cheerleader here because I think there is a lot of positive potential for this sort of work. And there's lots of doom mongers out there. So I think I'm, I, I'm kind of needed as an antidote to all the doom mongers, you know, who say, oh, this is just terrible um, to be able to predict genetically how people are going to turn out in life.
When we're talking about um, genetic influence and the statistic of heritability, which is simply a statistic describing the effect size. So heritability can be from zero, meaning it doesn't account for any variance, differences between people, to 100%, where it explains all the differences between people. And I should just make sure uh, clear that variance is also a descriptive statistic that describes this normal distribution that we often get. So variance is uh, just calculated as a, a difference from the mean of a population, and it's squared. So all it means is that there's a lot of variance, the distribution spread out like this, and if there isn't much variance, the distribution looks like that. But what we're trying to do in genetics, in behavioral genetics, and the gen medical genetics, is explain differences. So it's really important to know that we, are, we all share 99, maybe 0.5% of our DNA sequence. So if we sequence, as we can now readily do, all of our 3 billion base pairs of DNA, we will be the same at well over 99% of all of those bases. That's what makes us similar to each other. It makes us similar, really, to chimps and most and mammals. You know, we're well over 90% similar to all mammals. So there's a lot of genetic similarity that's really important from an evolutionary perspective, but it can't explain why we're different. And that's what we're up to, is trying to explain why some children are reading disabled or some people become schizophrenic and others not, alcoholism, etc. We're always talking about differences. So the only genetics that makes a difference are that, is that 0.5% of the 3 billion base pairs, but that is over 10 million base pairs of DNA. So we're looking at these differences and asking to what extent do they ca cause the differences that we observe. Now, I hesitated over the word cause because we don't often use the word cause, but the neat thing is DNA is the, when DNA correlates with something like reading ability, if you find some genes that correlate with it, it's the only correlation that you can unambiguously interpret causally because nothing changes your DNA sequence. So you inherit in the first cell that forms you the DNA combined from your mother and father and that DNA that you inherit is what causes the inherited differences that we see in everything. Now, um, we, Our DNA changes, we pick up mutations as we go along, but identical twins who had the same DNA at birth, they're as similar to one another in their DNA sequence late in life as you would be with yourself earlier. So we all pick up some mutations in the genome, but um, we're, the DNA that we inherit uh, is transmitted very, with great fidelity throughout life. In the early days, in the 1900s, you know, the word gene wasn't invented until 1903, but in the early 1900s, when Mendel was rediscovered, he did his work in the mid-19th century, and people uh, finally realized the impact of what Mendel did, and that is to show the laws of inheritance of a single gene. At that time, then, these um, Mendelians uh, went around looking for Mendelian 1 to 3 segregation ratios, which was the essence of what Mendel showed, that inheritance was discrete. But most of the socially or behaviorally or agriculturally important traits aren't either-or traits like a single gene disorder, Huntington's disease, you know, single gene dominant disorder, and that means 
that, that if you have that um, mutant form of the Huntington's gene, you will have Huntington's disease unless you die from something else first. It's necessary and sufficient. But that's not the way complex traits work. And so this other group began in England that um, were called uh, Fisherians or Galtonians, but they're interested in quantitative trait variation. They dismissed Mendelian stuff. They said that's just something weird in pea plants because clearly we're talking about normal distributions. And then in 1918, Fisher figured out that Mendel could be right, but if there were many, many genes involved, you would get a normal distribution, even if each of those genes works in the discrete way that Mendel said they do. It's like flipping a coin, and you flip, flip the coin. Each coin flip is either heads or tails, but then if you add those heads up over 100 flips, you know, you can get uh, a total score, and that, that score that you get after all those hundred flips will be normally distributed. So people realized these two things could come together. Nonetheless, the two worlds went apart because Mendelians became geneticists who were interested in understanding genes. And they would take a convenient, we call it phenotype, a measure, dependent measure, like in Drosophila, eye color, just something that was easy to measure. They aren't interested in that. They're interested in how genes work and they want a simple way of seeing how genes work. In contrast, the other guys studying complex traits, the Galtonians, say, became quantitative geneticists. They said, we're interested in these traits, um, often agricultural traits or um, human traits like cardiovascular disease or, in my case, reading ability, and you use genetics only insofar as it helps you understand that trait. So we're kind of behavior-centered, and the molecular geneticists are gene-centered. They want to know everything about how a gene works. And for a long time, for almost a century, these two worlds of genetics diverged. And it was only in the 1980s that they started to come together because the molecular geneticists realized that outside of the few thousand single, rare single gene disorders, most of the burden in, in society, the medical problems, whatever, cardiovascular disease, just about anything you can mention, isn't like that. There is, it isn't a single gene. It's heritable, but not a single gene. Many genes are involved. And the quantitative geneticists became envious of the possibilities of trying to identify specific genes. Then in the 1980s, what happened for the first time, we began to get to assess DNA variants directly in DNA. All we had up to that time was a handful of DNA differences, genetic differences, not actually DNA differences, like blood types, for example. And you couldn't go very far in identifying genes when you only have a handful of genes throughout the genome. But once we began to be able to sequence DNA and then look for differences between people, we could then use these new techniques in the 1980s to measure DNA variation directly. And so that made the molecular geneticists realize they could begin to study more complex traits, and it made the quantitative geneticists realize they could begin to identify genes, even if there are many genes of small effect. So in the last 10 years, these two worlds of genetics have completely come together, and it's technology-driven in the sense that the key factor were these um, chips, these DNA chips that allow you to genotype not just one or two DNA variants, but hundreds of thousands of DNA variants throughout the genome. 
and, and to do it cheaply because it was miniaturized, a little chip the size of a postage stamp can do hundreds of thousands of these DNA variants. So every lab could do this. The first um, major study that was done using this genome-wide association approach was for age-related macular degeneration, and it had some quick hits in 2006, and that made everyone realize this isn't just theoretical, this could be done. So the Wellcome Trust funded a huge consortium of hundreds of researchers that would focus on seven common disorders. Most of them were medical disorders like hypertension, Crohn's disease, but then there was um, bipolar manic depression that was included in that, a, a behavioral disorder. And that study then brought together all, it made people start to collaborate because you realized that you needed big samples to do this, to be able to correct for multiple testing and to find genes of small effect. Because the, it, it seems like God was messing with us in a way. The first study, macular degeneration, just had about 100 families, and they found two big hits. It worked incredible. It was different pathways than anyone had ever looked at. You know, this is a very common cause of blindness, my mother, for example, in later life. Two big hits that explain maybe half of the genetic variants in age-related macular de degeneration. What are these genes? They're nothing that everyone has studied before. They were inflammatory pathways. They led to drug trials of anti-inflammatories as preventive, you know, for people at genetic risk for age-related Everything worked. Incredible. Never happened again. All these other medical disorders that people have studied subsequently, there's never another example of age-related macular degeneration where you get a couple of big hits. That's what everyone thought. You know, the, the heritability, the genetic influence, everything. It's like age-related macular degeneration. There's there's a lot of genes, a small effect, but then there's a few big ones, you know? And it'd be wonderful if that were the case. But we now know we have tremendous power to be able to conclude decisively that for all these other medical and psychiatric disorders, there are no genes of big effect. And by big effect, I mean before when we were doing what was called linkage studies, explaining 10% of the variance of the liability for a disorder would have been considered, you know, that's kind of small, but, but now we're talking about 1% being a big effect size. Mm -hmm. And the average effect sizes, we're talking about risks of, you know, 0.05, and instead of one is the chance level, you know, it's like a 1.05 risk. Not like smoking cigarettes or something where you're talking about, what, a tenfold relative risk of lung cancer. So, so it's a whole new world, really. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, there was a lot of excitement in the whole scientific community. And I, I do want to emphasize, this isn't just behavioral sciences, this is all the life sciences, the medical sciences. Mm -hmm. And everybody was collaborating to create as large a sample as possible to detect these smaller effect sizes. And the yield early on, most people said, oops, you know, there wasn't anything like a macular degeneration effect. There were some solid effects that worked, but they accounted for so much less. They were much smaller effects than anyone ever thought. They, no one ever thought they could be, the biggest effects could be so small. Mm -hmm. And then people say, well, this is a drag, but if that's what, how nature works, we've got to roll up our sleeves, get bigger samples, get more clever, you know, instead of this brute force approach, think about cleverer ways to find genes. Mm -hmm. We were only using, for example, common variants on these chips, the most informative variants are ones that aren't rare, like 
0.1%, one in a thousand, because only if you have a sample of 10,000, you only have 10 people with that variant. They use common variants because they're more informative throughout the genome. But now people are saying, well, what if the genetic variants that are important aren't just these common ones? In fact, after the fact, you know, hindsight's always perfect, you can say these common variants are common, so they can't be that bad, or they, you know. But anyway, there's a lot of interest now in looking for these rare variants. And everyone's kind of holding their breath now, waiting for the next big thing, which is whole genome sequencing, where you don't just get hundreds of thousands of DNA variants tagging the whole genome. You get all three billion base pairs of DNA for each individual. That's the end of the story. That's all you inherit. So when we get there, again, with fairly large samples, but there's probably uh, several hundred thousand people in the world now who have had their whole genome sequenced, and it's thought by in a year or so, there's going to be a million people who will have had all their three billion base pairs sequenced. So we've got to be able to figure out where the so-called missing heritability is. That is the gap between the DNA variants that we identify that typically, the best example is like height. We can predict height is about 90% heritable, meaning of the differences between people in height, about 90% of those differences can be explained by genetic differences. With these genome-wide association studies, we can account for 20% of the variance of height, or a quarter of the heritability of height. So that's still not, it's still a lot of missing heritability, but 20% of the variance is explaining quite a bit. It's quite predictive of people's height. Mm -hmm. But here, in the, in the medical sciences, um, you know, the schizophrenia, people say they can explain 15% of the genetic liability. The jury's still out on how that translates into the real world. You know, what you want to be able to do is to get this polygenic score for schizophrenia that would allow you to just look at people in the whole population and predict who's going to become schizophrenic. And that's tricky because the studies are case control studies based on extreme, well-diagnosed schizophrenics versus not just controls, but clean controls that have no known psychopathology, if you know what I mean. So it's hard to general, you know, know how that really translates, but we'll know very soon how it really translates to predicting who becomes schizophrenic or not. Yeah, that's true. Th these are powerful new results, and I think anything powerful in science can have a downside as well as an upside. I, I like to be a cheerleader for all the positive potential for this work. But we really, now's a good time to have a discussion about the potential misuses. Uh, I often run into a knee-jerk reaction like, you know, how, why on earth would you want to be able to predict genetically, even you could do it prenatally, but even early in life, who's going to have problems like alcoholism or schizophrenia, for example, or reading disability for that matter? And my scientific answer to that, it, well, uh, other than the, the the usual scientific answer that we're truth seekers and we want to know what's true or not. But the, the other reason is that all of medicine has moved from curing problems, which we don't do very well, to preventing problems, more of a public health perspective. To prevent problems, you've got to predict them. And by being able to predict, and DNA is the best predictive game in town because it's the only causal correlation, we can begin to intervene. 
And so you take, take those three examples, for example, like alcoholism. I know several people who don't drink at all because they had an alcoholic father, and that was most uh, persuasive about the evils of alcohol. But that's a family-based risk. Within a family, um, some siblings won't have nearly the genetic risk of other siblings. Public health sort of work shows that interventions that are specific to an individual will be more effective. You say, you can drink as much as your sibling and you have a risk of alcoholism that's three times greater than your sibling. That gets people's attention and then it could also maybe help us begin to intervene to prevent the alcoholism because that works. That's a low-tech sort of solution. If you don't drink, you won't become alcoholic. Similarly with um, uh, schizophrenia, it's been shown that if you can uh, forestall or ameliorate the first schizophrenic episode, you won't cure schizophrenia, but you make subsequent episodes less severe. You make the long-term prognosis better that way. So again, if we could begin to predict and then intervene, maybe not to prevent schizophrenia, but just to ameliorate some of the symptoms, even say with cognitive behavior therapy, not after you've become schizophrenic and you're trying to deal with the symptoms, but before you become schizophrenic, it could help. And finally, with reading disability, it's the same sort of thing. It's a preventive, predictive approach. Because what we know is that uh, Unlike, say, schizophrenia and alcoholism, kids aren't, if you wait until they're diagnosed as reading disabled, you can, at school, you can still do something about it. But by the time you find out they're having a lot of trouble reading, it's like Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall. It's hard to put them back together again. There's a lot of collateral damage. I mean, they think they're not any good because reading is so central. But what we know is almost every child who has problems learning to read at school had language problems earlier. And there are good language intervention programs. So if you could predict which children are going, it will have these problems, there, that's a plausible way of intervening early to prevent the problems. Then people say, well, but why not just do that for all kids? Well, the answer to that is that interventions that work, especially in the behavioral sciences, aren't cheap magic bullets. They usually involve pretty intensive, expensive, sorts of interventions. So that's one answer to that question. So scientifically, and I think there's good reasons why you might want to uh, think about everyone having their genome sequenced. And for people in doubt about this, I'd really recommend um, uh, a book by Francis Collins. It's, it's several years old now, 2011, I think, but it, it's called um, Genomic Medicine. Um, and basically, he's just he makes the case for how useful this can be, this sort of approach to identifying genes. But in that book, he says, and, and he's not just a kook. I mean, people don't know. He was the head of the Genome Project and is now director of the National Institutes of Health in the United States. In the book, he says that he believes in the next few years, all newborns will have their genome sequenced. And further, in a few years from now, looking back on it, we'll say, how unethical was it not to have done that? We only screen now for genetic problems, like if it's like PKU, phenylketonuria, where we screen everyone in the world for it. We do genetic testing of just about all babies in the world. That's that heel prick. It does that and a couple of other single gene disorders, very rare. Other than that, the only single gene 
testing that you would have done is if someone already has the problem. So you have one child with a genetic disease, you get pregnant, you would look to see if this other child has it. But that's incredibly ineffective because most of these things are recessive so that they don't show up in all the children at all. It's one in four children, for example. For the price of doing a couple of those gene tests, you could actually do the whole genome sequence. And I'm sort of with Francis Collins on that, that it'll raise problems, but to be able to identify all the single, all the single gene disorders would be great. And from my perspective, uh, well, it would be great scientifically because it means you wouldn't have to collect DNA, you wouldn't have to do any genotyping. If the sequence is there on a little memory stick, which is all it would take, that's it in terms of the DNA, you know, the inheritance and, and finding out genetic risk. So um, even for complex traits like schizophrenia, alcoholism, I think there's a lot of merit in being able to predict. Now, of course, there are downsides that people can talk about, labeling, for example, but in schools for, uh, with reading disability and behavioral problems, there's a lot of labeling that goes on anyway. I mean, you can call them robins and bluebirds, but the kids figure out pretty quickly which group has the reading problems or the math problems or the behavioral problems, for example. Uh, so if I bring this back to my research, um, which is primarily in terms of education and looking at learning abilities like reading and behavior problems that are common in schools, uh, even before we get into DNA, I have a lot of trouble convincing people that uh, genetics could even be important, which just blows my mind, though. If you look at the books that, and the training that teachers get, genetics doesn't get a look in. Yet you ask teachers, as I've done, about why they think children are so different in their ability to learn to read, for example. Teachers know that, it, that genetics or something like that is important. But when it comes to governments and educational policymakers, their, their, first, their knee-jerk reaction is, if kids aren't doing well, you blame the teachers, you blame the schools, and if that doesn't work, you blame the parents, and if that doesn't work, you blame the kids. They're just not trying hard enough. So I think a very important message for genetics is that um, you've got to recognize that children are different in their ability to learn and to respect those differences because they're genetic. Not that we can't do anything about it, but just that it's like obesity. You know, there's a tendency now, people are thinking about charging people to be fat in the NHS because of, like smoking, you know, it's your fault. People, do people know that weight it's not as heritable as height, but it's very highly heritable. Maybe 60% of the differences in weight are heritable. Now, that doesn't mean you can't do anything about it. If you stop eating, you won't, you won't gain weight. But given the normal life in a fast food culture, you know, with our Stone Age brains that want to eat fat wherever they can see it and sugar, it's much harder for some people. If you're kind of like genetically thin, um, you've got to realize it's not so easy for some people. They just look at food and they get fat, and it's much harder to take off the weight. So we need to respect the fact that genetic differences are important, not just for body mass index and weight, but also for things like reading disability. Um, I know personally how difficult it is for some children to learn to read, and the genetics, I think, suggests that we need to have more recognition that children differ genetically, and then to respect those differences to a greater extent, to realize that learning to read is just more difficult for some children. 
So my grandson, for example, had a great deal of difficulty learning to read. And, you know, his parents and his grandparents, me and my wife, put a lot of energy into helping the child learn to read. And it works. Um, we have a, a granddaughter who taught herself to read. And both of them now are, are not just learning to read, they're reading to learn. And so you, it doesn't, genetic influence is just influence. It's not deterministic like a single gene. We're not saying that they will never learn to read genetically. But uh, it's, it's an important point because um, at government levels, and I've consulted with the government here, the Department for Education, and um, I don't think they're as hostile to genetics as I had feared. They're just totally ignorant of it because education just doesn't consider genetics, whereas teachers on the ground can't ignore it. I mean, I, I never get static from them because... They know that these children are different when they start and that some just go off on very steep trajectories and others, you know, it's a struggle all the way along the line. The government, when they see that, they tend to blame the teachers or the schools or the parents or the kids. But teachers know they're not um, ignoring this one child. If anything, they're putting more energy into it. So um, I think it's important to recognize and respect genetically driven individual differences. Not to say you can't do anything about it, but it's better to make policy based on knowledge than on fiction. And a lot of what I see in education is fiction. And I, um, part of the reason I think people will shy away from it in education genetics is because they think it's associated with the right-wing agenda. And it's so important to emphasize that scientific facts are neutral. It's the values you apply to them that should determine policy. So that if there's, as I'm, I'm certain there is, strong genetic influences on, say, individual differences in learning to read, a right-wing agenda might say, well, wait, we could save a lot of money here and just put money into the very best kids because it won't take much and they'll go sailing off. But I think it's a dumb policy because um, you, you, you don't need many Newtons to create calculus or, you know, the big advances we've had in, in science. But a society, I think, this is my value, sort of depends on intellectual capital, which involves much broader sort of intellectual support than the few geniuses who do things. So my value suggests the opposite from a right-wing agenda, and that is to say, uh, it's called the Finnish model in education, which no longer really works in Finland, but it's the idea of saying, in a technologically advanced society, we need to ensure that all citizens reach some minimal level of numeracy and literacy. And we need to put the resources into the lower end to make sure they don't fall off the low end of the bell curve. And to participate in society, you need a certain level of literacy and numeracy. So you can take the same data that genetics is important and your policies, depending on your values, can be very different for that. So those are the, uh, the big issues that I'm confronted with when I talk to people in education. On the whole, DNA, I don't even bother talking to them about because we're still at a level of even considering the possibility that differences between children in their ability to learn could be genetically influenced. Um, it's like uh, uh, clinical psychology 30 years ago. If you talked about genetics, they'd say, they'd hate it because they'd say, well, that's the end of clinical psychology. Say, what? 
They say, well, if it's genetic, then we can't do anything about it. And you say, no, 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 that's wrong. In fact, by identifying genetic differences, you might be able to create therapies that work especially well for certain people. And it's the same thing in education. But I find education's like the last backwater of anti-genetic, you know, thinking. It, it's, not, it's not even anti-genetic. It's like genetics doesn't even exist. They don't even want to hear about it in education. So I'm very concerned to get people in education talking about genetics because the data is overwhelming. You know, the things that interest them, learning abilities, cognitive ability, behavior problems, in childhood, these are the most terrible things in the behavioral domain. And yet, it's like Alice in Wonderland. You go in educational conferences, it's as if none of that exists. And so I'm wondering about where to put this DNA stuff. Because if we're explaining 10% of the variance with a DNA chip of GCSE scores, these uh, national tests that are administered at the end of compulsory education at age 16, it's, this is real now, and people are go, be going to begin to use it. And so I think it's very important that we begin to have this conversation, but I'm kind of um, frustrated at not being able to even engage with the possibility of genetic influence. Um, so I think it is ignorance as much as it is antagonism. <laughs>